Kathleen Marshall was the first children's commissioner from 2004 to 2009. You could call her a trendsetter. I wasn't even born then. Hello, it's Kathleen number one. I'm not often called a trendsetter, so it's quite good to hear that. And it's amazing to hear young people talking about the commissioner's office who weren't even born when I started the job in 2004. That's 18 years ago now, so we're celebrating the coming of age of the office itself. And in that time, there have now been three commissioners. So I am here um, in conversation with my successors, Tam Bailey, who came immediately after me, and the current commissioner, Bruce Adamson. And we're going to try and talk about some of the issues that children and young people have asked us to speak about. Tam, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you. I had the unenviable task of trying to follow you, Kathleen, So I was the second commissioner. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Uh, we don't get the chance to be together that often, so it's lovely to be able to come together to celebrate the 18th anniversary, the growing up, if you like, of the Commissioner's Office. And I'm sure we've got lots of tax and questions that will be faced that have been posed by children and young people. It'll be great to be here. And Bruce, were you the adolescent stage of the office? What have I, you got to... I, well, I, I was absolutely... So I, I got all of the incredible development through adolescence, but also had the, the huge benefit of seeing both of you acting as commissioners and, and learning so much from that, which really, I think, put the office in great stead for the difficult adolescent years and have the, the huge privilege of being the commissioner during the 18th anniversary, which is so exciting, which is why I was so pleased to, to get the opportunity to sit down with you both. It just struck me that I'm in the same position as I was when I took up the job, but I'm the first one and have to... <laughs> Make it up as I go along, sort of thing, and just hope that I've got it right, you know. And I can just cruise and as the third one, and it's like it's all been done. This is... so, Follow um... your lead, Kathleen. Well... <laughs> the Commissioner's Office was something I'd been campaigning for for a long time. I started in child law in sort of 1988, 1989, just when the UN Convention was getting passed and started to implement it. And I, th I can't remember a time when I wasn't advocating for the post to be set up. In fact, during the passing of the Children's Scotland Act 1995, I can remember in the middle of the night faxing, as we did in those days, enormous documents, including draft clause about a children's commissioner that probably annoyingly woke somebody up at three o'clock in the morning. So it was a long time coming and it, it was great to have been the first commissioner, although that, that obviously had its challenges as well. <laughs> My name's Megan and I'm 11. My question is, what inspired you to be a children's commissioner? I think I wanted to be in a position to make a difference. I'd been working in child law for quite a while as director of the Scottish Child Law Centre. And after I was director of the law centre, I did other kind of freelance things. And one of them was, for example, I chaired a uh, public inquiry in Edinburgh into the abuse and protection of children in care. And the things that I wanted to do was to try and do something that had a more long-term ambition. When I was director of the Child Law Centre, you kind of helped pass laws and things, but I realised there was an awful lot more to be done in implementation of the laws and in cultural change. And those were things that I wanted to move on to. And when I was um, chairing an inquiry into abuse in children's homes in Edinburgh, 
the thing that struck me was once I had done my bit and submitted my report, that was the end of it for me. I had no other role and it was up to other people to take those recommendations forward. So I saw the Children's Commissioner's role as having something that would be more enduring and that could actually see if the laws that we worked so hard to pass actually were being implemented and were making a difference and could follow up longer term and make sure that that impact was sustained. So I think that's really what inspired me for that. Tam, what's your...? Yeah, I'd spent about the better part of my life actually working with children and young people. So I worked with them in all sorts of different settings, either in care or youngsters who were leaving care, youngsters who were getting into trouble with, with the law. And just before I was commissioner, I'd been involved a long while with youngsters who were homeless or actually sleeping rough. And there was a number of youngsters just didn't make it into adulthood. And that really spurred me to, I think, try and make a difference. It's a bit like you said, Kathleen, mm -hmm. you know, trying to make a, a kind of long-term change. And the commissioner's job was an opportunity to try and bring lots of that professional, personal experience that I had and try and get through to decision makers just the importance of making good long-term decisions for children and young people. I now know, I mean, the job of influencing is very varied. No one person's going to make a difference. But if I could make some little difference on the basis of the experience that I was bringing to, then that felt like just a prize that was worth really going for. And the commissioner's role itself does have influence. So you, you can actually get things through to people that maybe otherwise they wouldn't listen to. So yeah, I think that's where my motivation really came from. Bruce, what about you? Well, you, Kathleen, actually were a big inspiration <laughs> for me. I came to Scotland from New Zealand in, in 2002, and, and I think like many migrants, was very keen to get involved in the community, and so I joined the, the children's <laughs> panel. But it was also the time where they were setting up the Office of the Children's Commissioner, and then your appointment, Kathleen, 18 years ago, and I had the, the incredible privilege of coming and being one of your staff as the legal and parliamentary officer. And I think that the ability to kind of be part of building the office, starting to kind of create it, figuring out how we were going to work, how we were going to um, work with children and young people and watching the way that you did that and particularly the way in which you put children and young people's voices and their rights right at the heart of everything that we did. It was so different to everything else that was being done and it really changed the way in which children's rights but also children's voices were being put right at the heart of decision making. And so that was a huge privilege learning at your feet there along with the, the rest of the amazing team. And then I went on and, and was working, did the same thing at the Scottish Human Rights Commission and, and did kind of international work more on, on human rights and in places of conflict and, and things like prisons and, and other elements of kind of adult human rights. And so when the opportunity came up to be the Children's Commissioner, it was, it was probably earlier than I expected to, but I thought there was a really unique opportunity and discussing with children and young people about it, there was this real sense that after years and years of positive discussion about children's rights. We had a Scottish Parliament, we'd created a commissioner, um, we had governments that were talking about love and about children's rights, but things weren't really changing. And we hadn't really delivered the change on some of those big issues like poverty and mental health. Children were being listened to a little bit, but they weren't really having their right to, to participate in decision-making, respected. And so I thought there was a really unique opportunity to come in and kind of be commissioner now 
and try and really shift some of that rhetoric into real change. And I think the children and young people really inspired me as well in terms of that discussion, in terms of saying we want a commissioner who can be able to deliver that change. And so I think all of us really get that inspiration on a daily basis from the children and young people we work with, as well as, as some of the, the great mentors that we've had. I think that's uh, very true. And I think, yes, it's all pushing for making a difference and not always knowing what difference you're making until you see it retrospectively, isn't it? It's a very, very, it's a slow process. If it's going to stick, it's a slow process. My name's Iris and I'm age eight. What's the hardest thing about being children's commissioner? I'm Finlay, I'm 16. Were there any parts of the job that you didn't like? I'm Ibuku and I'm 15 years old. What was your most difficult moment? The hardest thing about being a children's commissioner, I think there is a point in trying to make sure that you really do get children and young people's voices on board. And over the years, I mean, even when I started in child law, the main act was the Social Work Scotland Act 1968 and Section 20, I still even remember that, said um, that when children were in care, they had to listen to their voices, their views when making major decisions. And nobody actually did that. You know, if I was speaking to a group of social workers and um, I talked to them about that, they would look blank at me. So though it was written there, nobody was doing it. And then once we kind of moved on and people realised that we would really had to take this seriously and... You know, I used to say to him, look, it's not just a freestanding thing in terms of the UN Convention. Taking account of children, young people's views on subject is a major part of deciding where their best interests lie. You know, you can't say you're doing something in the interests of a child if you don't know what their views are on it. So I think trying to shift that along and then people took that on board. And then there was this big panic to say, how do we actually do this? And how do we do it in a way that doesn't actually put an undue pressure on a young person. I mean, I can remember somebody phoning me, it was way back in the law centre days, and um, she was quite proud of the fact that when she and her husband were splitting up, she asked her four-year-old, who do you want to live with? And I was horrified at that. I knew that she was trying to do the right thing, but I just thought of what that must have felt like to this four-year-old. And so I think, we kept that thing has been going on and on and on. And even at the time that I was appointed commissioner, I think we still had some false starts. You know, had various groups of children and young people and various mechanisms, but I still think some of them we didn't do very well. And children and young people were so forgiving of us when we didn't do it well because they knew that we were trying. So I would say that that was one of the most difficult challenges in terms of what was it Finlay asked, things that we didn't like? I think what I found, I didn't like bureaucracy. I didn't <laughs> like, oh, see, there's Bruce chuckling away at that. There was a lot of stuff that you had to do, you know, bureaucratic stuff, which was quite frustrating, the amount of time you had to spend on it. And sometimes I think one of the things I found was that whereas the media could be very supportive, sometimes it could be quite undermining, you know. I mean, I remember going to London to talk to the immigration minister about Dungaval, the immigration detention, and it was very much an exploratory meeting. And I didn't expect the world to change drastically as a result of it. But 
the headline the next day was Children's Commissioner Fails to Get Dungavel Closed. And I thought, you know, that puts me on the back foot. I wasn't there to get it closed. I was there to kind of build relationships and start the negotiations and all of that sort of thing. So those sorts of things were things that I found frustrating. Tam, did you want to say yeah, something on that? I think one of the real challenges or difficult things for the job is the expectations. So the expectations are enormous. And a bit like that example you've just given there, Kathleen, you're going to solve everything at the drop of your heart. And everybody's got different expectations of what the Commissioner's Office will achieve. And trying to get the balance right between the aspiration of that desire to change that we've all talked about, tempered with uh, an understanding that change takes a while. And it takes more than just a Commissioner's Office. It takes a, a whole number of people coming from different angles to be on the same page to actually achieve the change. And I think that's quite difficult also when... We spend so much time getting the views of children and young people about seeking their involvement and their engagement, and they're looking for change tomorrow. And we know through numerous examples that the change process is painfully, painfully slow. So it might all be going steadily in one direction, but too slow a pace for many people. So I think that's one of the balances and one of the challenges in trying to manage the expectations of the job. The other thing is that I agree with what you said with regard to the public body expectations. It's great that the Commissioner's Office is, is independent in Scotland and it's more independent than most of the other institutions that are similar in other jurisdictions. But what comes with that independence is expectations on fulfilling the role of a public body and that is a very bureaucratic exercise with lots and lots of policies and processes that are balancing on the tip of a pinhead really because the office is very small but it's the price that you pay or the price we pay for that privilege of being independent. In terms of difficult moments or things that you find difficult I think you touched on it there there's an element of being in the public eye so my own really difficult moments would have been really testing experiences of giving evidence in parliament where there was quite a lot of hostile questions or when you do genuinely in media supporting an aspect of children's rights where there's not a lot of sympathy around. And we've all got examples of that. So those are the necessary parts of the job that you need to do. I think quite early on in my tenure, I realised that you have to do things that you feel true to yourself and not worry overly much about trying to please everybody. Because the bottom line is, I don't think you are going to please everybody in this role. You've got a particular line You've got particular responsibilities and you go at it. That can sometimes make it a lonely place, but as long as you're surrounded by people whose judgment you trust, then that will get you through it. Bruce, you're nodding your head a lot during that. Yeah, I, I strongly agree with what both of you have said. I, I think every time I, I talk to, to children and young people, I, I, I say to them, you're our boss as children's commissioner. So our role is to promote and safeguard the rights of, of children across Scotland. So so that's where the mandate comes from. We're, we're appointed by the Queen on nomination of, of Parliament and we've got legal powers and, and duties, but the mandate really comes back to children and young people being our boss. I always ask children, how many children do you think there are in Scotland? And, and you generally get answers from 200 um, to 5 billion. And you eventually get to kind of 
just over a million and saying with a million bosses, each kind of individual with different lived experience and, and different ideas about what we could do. How, how do you balance those mm. expectations? And then the really broad array of human rights that we're protecting. So the Convention on the Rights of the Child being really central, but the rights framework's broader than that as well. And it impacts on every single aspect of, of children's lives. So the hardest bit is how do you prioritise that? How do you figure out how you're going to make the biggest difference with the, the resources that you've got? Kind of links to that idea about using the available resources to the maximum extent possible. So how do you achieve that? And that um, prioritisation is really hard. And I think as we've all done, as you involve children and young people in that process, you, you look in terms of see what the political opportunities are there, but you, you're never going to keep everyone happy. So that's a really hard thing. And also just with your own time as well is that the, the diary of a children's commissioner is incredibly challenging because you're whizzing from one meeting to a next, to, to a visit to a school, to a keynote speech, to evidence in parliament. And so keeping up with that is, is really challenging. And, and I think the, the point that was made around that can be quite lonely, but what's really important is building a really strong, strong team around you. And I think that for me was one of the big answers about dealing with the hard bits of the job about that point on kind of bureaucracy and the, of course, it's important that we're accountable for public funds and we're accountable against the delivery of, of our mandate. But in a very small organisation with, with a dozen or kind of 15 staff, some of those bureaucratic kind of accountability mechanisms are quite complex. And so what was really key for me was building up the, the capacity within the senior management team in the office so that the office could run and allow the commissioner to be um, being the commissioner. And I think that's really important because commissioners come and go, the three of us mm -hmm. sitting around here, <laughs> but the office is, is eternal. And so that, that really important thing about making sure that we invest really heavily in building the strength of the office and then including young people in that. And so the, the kind of young advisors that, that we have kind of coming in and, and getting them involved in things like governance and recruitment, I think is really important in building an office that's bigger than any one individual commissioner so, so that we can kind of come and go and put our own stamps on it. But the office needs to be able to, to deal with whatever weather comes its way. And I think the other aspect of kind of important kind of challenge that both referenced was some of the external criticism, which I think is, is something that is really difficult. It, it's really difficult when, when people are expressing very strong views that you should be doing something else. What I think is maybe a little bit different about the time that I've been commissioner is probably social media has played a much mm. bigger role than perhaps back when, when you were starting, Kathleen, or even during your time, Tam. And, and now social media is an incredible tool for us to kind of do our work. I can, I can put something on Twitter now and it'll be in the, in the media straight away. We don't need to go through kind of press releases and things. But it also exposes you and it also exposes the young people we work to with very direct kind of visceral kind of criticism. And, and that's something I'm, I'm concerned about in terms of making sure that we can have these difficult discussions in uh, an open, kind of honest way without some of the vitriol that exists. And I think particularly for young human rights defenders, which is a real passion for mine, I really don't like the fact that in doing human rights work, you're often exposed to reprisals in the form of attacks on social media. And I think that that's something that, that I, really, I really don't like and we're really trying mm. to fix. I think that's very true. I mean, I would get the occasional abuse of email calling me a something old cow or something like that, you know, but it was absolutely nothing like the trolling that is possible now. And as you say, for young people as well, it's really worrying that that sort of thing might actually be a barrier to young people getting involved in important things like this. Yeah, yeah. it's probably a new phenomenon, this, I mean, because social media was in its early stages, really, when I was uh, there 
We didn't use it to the extent that it's used nowadays, and certainly not with young people. There was a bit of experimentation going on at that point. But you're right, it's a different world of media and exposure. It's been excellent, for instance, the passage of the incorporation and wholesale parliamentary support for that. But there's still a constituency of people who don't really rate or value children's rights or indeed the views of children and young people and a whole host of things. And that's always going to be there and maybe lessening numbers. Uh, it's a facet of the job that we have to find ways of managing. And in particular, the commissioner needs to find ways of being able to be comfortable in where they're, you know, the positioning that they're taking. It's just one of the aspects of the job that people need to live with. Yeah, I think, Bruce, that point you made about children being our boss, I can remember when I was doing my first consultation with children and young people, which are required to do, you know, in terms of the act, and one newspaper having a headline, it was a bit sneering, you know, kids are asks children how she should do her job. And I think, yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I'm doing, you know. They're supposed to inform the priorities, but um, I don't think they quite got it. You know, it was as if I should come in all guns blazing with a particular agenda and just do that and that nothing children and young people said should make a difference. So I hope we've moved on a bit about that, but I'm not sure how much we have. But I, I, think, yeah. I think that was that was really key for me as well, Kathleen. Obviously, you, you come in with your own ideas. But the first thing I did was travelled all around Scotland and yeah. asked, asked children exactly those questions. How should I do my job? How should I talk? How should I dress? I yeah. had some brilliant conversations about what should a commissioner look like and, and these incredibly kind of nuanced discussions with children about saying, we want you to come to our communities and kind of sit on the floor and get the paints out and be creative and listen to us in that environment of kind of happiness, love and understanding, that really nurturing environment to listen to us, to engage with us, to come to us. But also we want you to then put the suit on and go down to Edinburgh or go to the local authorities and, and use the legal words and use the legal powers and be really kind of strong and use adult power in order to achieve change for us. Up in Shetland, they, they said they wanted me to be savage in holding those in power to account, which is, is maybe kind of linked to the Viking heritage up there. But I, I put it into my strategic plan because I think that was really clear, that idea that children want a commissioner who's their commissioner, who they can talk to and engage with, but they also recognise the power of the office and want us to use that power on, on their behalf. And and I think that anyone who says that, that children of any age kind of can't have a view hasn't spent time with children and young people. Because mm. even in the early years work that we do, even non-verbal children, you can always get ideas and inspiration from them. And they're the experts in their own life. And unless we're involving them in decision-making in our work and everyone's work, then, then not only are we not living up to the requirements of the Convention on the Rights of the Child in Article 12, but we're not making legitimate decisions because they're, they're going to be ineffective because we're not actually involving those who the decisions are going to affect. So again, that was a, a really good example. I, I recalled some of that, that pushback that you were getting in Parliament, particularly yeah. about engaging with children and young people, and it was really important. I think it goes right to the heart of the point of a children's commissioner is to really push back strongly on that. And, and I think that's something the office has been really effective on. So I, I think the dial shifted a, a good bit uh, in 18 years, because um, I'm not surprised, Kathleen, at the beginning, people wouldn't just ask the question how, they would, they would actually ask the question why you were engaging with children and young people, or you wanted the views of children and young people. I do think we're in a much more, uh, an era just now where the question most often asked would be how. But even during my own time, which is in the middle of all of that, 
I had experiences of going to schools where we were conducting a right blather. We were wanting to get the views of as many children and young people as possible. But you would get questioning from teachers, especially when you were standing in front of assembly saying, and I'm going to base my priorities on what you tell me. And, you know, we'll find a way of being able to try and distill it down. And there was a sense of, is that right? Is that how you're going to go about your business? Are you not the commissioner? Shouldn't you know? I, I think it's less nowadays, but I do think there's a residual, because there's even been some recent writings about the approach that uh, was taken by The Promise, for instance, and asking children and young people their views. There's a bit of kickback on that, which I don't believe in. But, you know, there's still an element there. People needn't convinced about the fundamental importance of the views of children and young people playing a part how we go about our business, how we go about making sure that we get the best services for them that we can possibly have. Hello, I'm Michael and I am 10. I'm Wada and I'm 11. I'm Harry and I'm 10. We spoke to the Scottish Cabinet about what adults need to do to make children's rights real. We think that all adults need to know more about children's rights. One of the ideas we had was to have a museum about children's rights. It would be free, so anyone would go in and it would have 54 different things in it. One for each right. We were wondering what you think we'd need to make it happen. Well, I think that's a brilliant idea because I think it's even quite important to take stock of how far we have come. I mean, I was at school in the time when you got the belt <laughs> big leather belt on your hand for doing things like looking out a window as you walk to the front of the class and stuff like that. And it's hard to think back in that. If I tell my little grandchildren about that now, you know, they're they're absolutely horrified. And I think the whole attitude about the importance of, of listening to children and of being kind to children, when you look back... It's with absolute horror, I think, about how unkind society often was to children in the past. And I do think that that's been one of the biggest changes. I think we are generally kinder to children. We are more nurturing. We understand a lot more about what children need to thrive emotionally, psychologically, etc. But that sometimes might be expensive. You know, there are other things that children have lost, you know, like the right to play, the right to take risks. We used to spend our childhood up the coal bings in industrial Lanarkshire. I'm not saying that was entirely safe, but we just roamed around for hours until we were hungry and went back home from a very young age. And all the social media stuff, you know. So I think showing that and, and showing that it's not always a direct improvement in everything. There's gains and there's losses in terms of the basic rights of children when you drill down to what it's all about. And I think that would also alert us to some of the current issues because we're never going to get all children's rights suddenly respected in every way because the world throws up new challenges all the time that we have to meet. So it wouldn't just be a kind of congratulatory thing about, oh, it was dreadful in the past and it's great now. I think it would open dialogue about what it takes to have a world that actually truly respects the rights of children and young people and maybe will kind of inspire some thinking about 
what the next stage in that is. So good idea. I heartily approve. <laughs> Tam, what about you? Yeah. Are you going to be a statue in that? <laughs> Museum town. It'd be a very small statue. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't need to worry about it taking up much place. And the answer's no. Because I, I think I said earlier, I mean, children's commissioners are one part of the fabric of uh, trying to change things for the better for children. I do actually think overall, though, a, a reflection on, you know, the times where children were working, children were expected to do certain jobs, etc. You would see uh, really very significant changes of where they're at now. But we are concerned about youngsters' mental health and well-being and plays a very good example of something that's dropped out of children's lives. The opportunity for free outdoor play not being supervised. We now think that that's got a direct impact on the mental health of adolescents. So there are prices to pay in our modern world. The number of children that are injured through traffic. So it's a different world, but I do think that overall you would see really very significant differences about how we treat and respect children from a couple of hundred years ago to where they're at now. So a museum that traced that, wow, it would be a very illuminating kind of experience to see that tracked out in a timeline. So the answer is yes. So is this a triple whammy, Bruce? Do you think it's a good idea as well? Oh, mine mine might be a bit of a kind of a soft yes, or let's have (laughs) some more discussion about this, I think. Because I love museums, but I I worry about conceptualising it. A museum is a little bit kind of backward looking and maybe not as, um, I'd maybe like a festival of rights or or some interactive exhibition, maybe online, certainly. I I think one of the things we've learned a lot is about the fact that we can do so much kind of online and engaging. But what's really important for, for me around understanding rights and I think the celebration that the children there were talking about in their interaction with the cabinet was around being able to kind of celebrate and understand rights and particularly the purpose being to make sure that adults understood about children's rights. And so how do you best fulfil that aim? I think maybe we need to have something really interactive, but also reflecting on the fact that, that all of the articles within the convention are interrelated. They all rely on each other. They're interdependent. And sometimes I worry that if we kind of break them up and look at a right in isolation, Sometimes we, we forget about that, and particularly when we look back to the kind of guiding principles of the convention, the fact that adults need to understand that every decision they make should be in children's best interest, that they can only do that if they involve the participation, the voice of children and young people. So how do those two relate to each other is really, really important. The use of available resources to the maximum extent possible. So how do you bring budgets into that along with best interest, along with participation? How does that play out in relation to education and healthcare? They're really closely linked. And the fact that the rights are all interlinked, I think the museum's going to have to be really interactive and explain how rights interrelate with each other. So I think we could take the museum idea and and kind of expand the museum concept into being something kind of much more interactive and, and really speaking to this idea that children's rights run through everything that we do. And we should certainly reflect on how far we've come. But those principles that cut through, we probably need to make sure that the museum is something that children and young people are designing, that they're (laughs) part of, and that the museum and the interaction involves some of these types of discussions. So even when we discuss whether we should have a museum or not, that's a discussion we need to have with children and young people. And and how's that going to work? And how's it going to meet that aim of ensuring that, that all adults understand all rights and how their obligations are going to fulfil those rights. Mm. I think looking back, it would be very interesting. I mean, some people have heard me speak of this before, the 1924 Declaration of the Rights of the Child, which was written really in the wake of the First World War. 
And the statements that it made are so relevant now and they're questions for us. You know, the child should be the first to receive assistance in times of distress. If we look at the war now and the refugees and austerity and all sorts of things, are we actually living up to that standard that was set in 1924? The child that is hungry should be fed. Are we doing that? All the issues about poverty now, have we gone back? on what we all thought was so self-evident in 1924. And the UN Convention can help there because you mentioned you know, Article 3 about like, budgets and everything should take account of the child's best interest as a primary consideration. That would mean that we would do that. We would be addressing poverty, etc. And we would be doing it effectively and children would be the first to receive relief in times of distress and children that were hungry would be fed and were not doing that now. So I would say, I can see you don't want a kind of um, stuffy museum with static exhibits, but I think something that actually made you ask questions about what have we lost as well as what have we gained and how committed are we really when times get hard are we really so committed to the promises we've made to children in the UN Convention that we're actually going to do this and going to, to put them first? So I suppose that's kind of how I would see it operating. Thank you, everybody. Thank the children and young people for those very stimulating questions which have made us think very hard. And thanks to Tam and Bruce for all of their thoughts on this. I've certainly gone away from this discussion very stimulated and maybe I'll just apply for it again. Bruce, when, you, when you've finished, you know, I'll be 70, but, <laughs> but who knows? Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks very much for those questions. It's interesting when we interact with each other just about the amount of overlap, although there are some differences of perspective and time as well. That's really interesting. Thanks again. From me, thanks as well to the children and young people who asked those really searching questions. And again, it's great to spend time with you, Tam and Kathleen. I strongly agree that there's so much overlap. Um, and obviously I had the benefit as, as the third commissioner of seeing that experience and learning from it. And I think that's really interesting in terms of how we take that and apply it in a changing world. Scotland's Children's Commissioner at 18 is a bespoken media production produced by Amanda Hargreaves with assistance from John, one of the Commissioner's young advisors. Music created by young people, Praise, Jack, Sophia, Krista, Vicky, Logan and Maria from Systema Scotland's Big Noise Tower programme in Aberdeen. Sound design by Joel Cox.